Well, welcome to the first Sunday of September. And this day marks the start of a new series titled, By This We Know. And you know how much I was excited to start the series with you all. It's an expository series through the letter of 1 John. So there's always secondary titles to this series. It is, By This We Know something. Today, by this we know the word of life. And so the objective that I want to achieve in this beginning Sunday, the first Sunday of this series, is to lay the ground foundations of the whole epistle. So you need to pay close attention because everything else that will come after throughout this series depend on your understanding of the historical context of this letter. Okay? Having said that, I invite you all to stand as we read the Word of God together. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. I hope you have your Bible with you because it's going to be important. We're going to be Going back and forth, you will know this letter front and back by the grace of God. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Let's pray. Father God, we're opening your word this afternoon. We ask you that you would calm our racing thoughts, that we would not think of anything outside of Scripture, that we would commit our minds, our hearts, our wills to understand your word. Because there is nothing greater, there is nothing more important for God's people than to sit at the feet of your apostles and hear the God-breathed word. Lord, I pray that you would change hearts this afternoon, that you would cause us to walk in newness of life, that you would transform us and you would change us, and that you would be all in all, that you would be the center of our lives. I pray, Lord, that, you, that all the words that I will speak, you would come forth with clarity on the ears of your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Doctrine divides. You've heard that cliche before. Doctrine divides is a cliche that many of you have come across. Maybe some here have never heard of this term before, so let me explain. Its premise is, that, is rooted in the concept of unity. In order to maintain unity in the church, we ought to not discuss all the intricate details of doctrine throughout Scripture. And so when we teach and when we articulate our positions of faith, we talk in generalities. We don't have to be so specific, just in general. 
Let's talk and teach about the things that we all agree upon. And so we have unity. Or so is the assumption behind the statement, doctrine divides. However, this is a quintessential misunderstanding that is roaming around in evangelical circles. And heed this warning, Christian. This is one of the most dangerous concepts for any child of God to have. Because as we will see in our study of 1 John, it flies in the face of New Testament Scripture. Do not ever forget that the Christian faith is predicated on understanding right doctrine. Right doctrine indeed will be that what separates truth from a lie. A true teacher of the Word of God and a false teacher. Let me say this again. It is the difference between truth and lie. To drive this point home, doctrine in Christian, let me use an antiquated term, Christian dogmatics or Christian beliefs is what separates salvation from damnation. And so doctrine is important. It is what we know of Jesus who he is, what he has done on the cross, and how we ought to live our lives. This is all doctrine. And so for us to stab at the heart of Christian theology and scripture, God's revealed word, we will say doctrine divides. Let me give you an example from church history. His name is John Calvin, a magisterial reformer who wrote his magnum opus or his most important work is called the Institutes of the Christian Religion. In it, he discussed the importance of all biblical doctrines and he explained why, including doctrines that are very controversial in the church. In his chapter, when he was discussing one of the most controversial doctrines of his day, and I would argue even today, the doctrine of predestination, he said the following, and you will have it on your screen. He said, For Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit, in which as nothing is omitted that is both necessary and useful to know. So nothing is taught but what is expedient to know. Therefore, we must guard against depriving believers of anything disclosed about predestination. Let me open a bracket, or any other doctrine in Scripture. Close bracket. Lest we seem to either wickedly to defraud them of the blessings of their God, or to accuse and scoff at the Holy Spirit for having published what is in any way profitable to suppress. Let me put it in modern and easier terms. He's saying, if we are saying there are some doctrines that we shouldn't talk about, then we are committing two sins, one or two of two sins. The first, either we are wickedly defrauding God's people of the blessing to know all of God's word, or we are accusing the Holy Spirit that he has published something that is good for us to suppress. He continues, 
He says, But for those who are so cautious or fearful that they desire to bury predestination, open bracket, or any other doctrine, close bracket, in order not to disturb weak souls, with what color will they cloak their arrogance when they accuse God indirectly of stupid thoughtlessness? As if he had not foreseen the peril that they feel they have wisely met. Whoever then heaps odium upon the doctrine of predestination openly reproaches God as if he had unadvisedly let something slip hurtful to the church. In modern terminology, he is saying, those who say, let's not discuss certain doctrines, not to offend some weak souls in our midst, they are effectively saying that God had not foreseen the pearl or the problem that may occur by publishing or revealing these things in his word. Do we think that God did not think far enough and we are wise enough to start suppressing the truth in order to maintain church unity? Doctrine divides is a lie. Therefore, we can conclude that all biblical doctrines are important. And every Christian ought to lend themselves to the due diligent study of Scripture. All biblical doctrine are good and edifying for God's people. Now that we have established that doctrine is important, and every Christian ought to diligently study the Word of God and study all Scripture and all doctrine, now we can go and I can state the objective of this sermon. The objective of this sermon is very simple. In one sentence, it is to help you to see that God's physical incarnation in Jesus Christ is the basis of our Christian faith and practice and the means by which redemption is accomplished. That's the objective. In order to achieve this objective, we need to learn two things. The first, we need to know the historical context of 1 John. The historical context in light of the first two verses that we just read. The second thing we need to learn is the contemporary relevance of these two verses and the historical context to our lives. So we need to discuss the heart of this letter. The apostle here discusses a very important doctrine. It is the doctrine of Christology. And there are sub-doctrines under this doctrine of Christology called the doctrine of incarnation, meaning God's physical incarnation. He is physically here with us in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. That's what the doctrine of incarnation is. Another doctrine he discusses is the doctrine of hypostatic union. That is, that Jesus Christ is one person, fully divine and fully man. We will be discussing all of them because I see some puzzled faces. So what is the historical context of 1 John? As you read 1 John, you will notice something that is interesting. 
There are no greetings in 1 John, and there are no concluding statements. So, we can conclude that this is a sermonic letter, that John, the apostle, knew those whom he's speaking to. We know from the book of Revelation that John was speaking directly to certain churches in Asia Minor, and so a lot of scholars conclude that the apostle John was indeed an overseer at the end of the first century of churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And so all the churches addressed in Revelation, like Ephesus, Laodicea, etc., all of them, you can put them all in view of this epistle. So that's the first thing. Another thing you would notice in, as you read 1 John, you would notice that he's not teaching his people, God's people, systematically, like Paul, think um, the letter to the Romans. He's teaching them cumulatively. He adds one truth and denies another, adds one truth and denies another. And he goes through that and try to express the problems that they're having that he's dealing with. Now, this letter was written around 90 AD, first century, uh, which is about five to ten years after the Gospel of John. And that matters because everything he's about to say, he is assuming that they have already had the Gospel of John. So it's important to keep in mind. And so you can ask, what were the problems that the Apostle John was dealing with? during that time? And that will be a very interesting question. So how do we know what were the issues going on during that time in Asia Minor? Well, it's really quite easy to find out. When you come across a verse that says, those who say Jesus did not come in the flesh deny Christ. It's pretty easy. That there are people who are saying that Jesus is God but not in the flesh. You get it? So this is, we can reconstruct the issues that John was dealing with just from a, a gloss reading of the epistle. But of course, we have more than just a gloss reading that we can reconstruct the problems that the apostle John was addressing. We also have extra biblical material, like the fathers, the church fathers, like Irenaeus, who addressed some of the heresies that, that we will be dealing with here today, that later came to be known Gnosticism, as Gnosticism, or Docetism. These are two different, um, similar but different uh, heresies. Some scholars say that this concept of Gnosticism is what brought to birth Docetism. Some people say, no, they are two separate things. However, I would be with, of the opinion that there are indeed two separate things. Maybe at the beginning, at the time of, when, of the writing of 1 John, they may have been similar. It's all started together. And that's why we call this heresy proto-Gnosticism, or the beginning of Gnosticism, which we know today began and really kind of launched off in the second century. When you walked in today... You have received the handout, just like this one. I want you to look at it because this is very important. I want you to look at the last column. You will have it on the screen, but you probably can't see it on the screen. This is for those who will be viewing um, on YouTube, and they should be at church. 
So the last column here, it talks about assumptions. This when you see that Gnosticism and Docetism actually carry similar assumptions. And here's one. The first assumption they have is that the material universe, everything that exists, is inferior. It is indeed evil for them. They have this idea of dualism, that everything that is fleshly, everything that is created is evil, and everything that is spirit, spiritual is good. And so they had a problem. They misunderstood the doctrine of divine transcendence, meaning that God is apart from his creation. God is clearly not creation. And so they took this doctrine to the extreme, denying everything in Scripture from the New Testament and the Old Testament, and they start to morph different ideas about who is Jesus Christ. Because they heard Jesus Christ is God. But they had a predetermined commitment to the notion that the world is inferior, it's evil. And so we cannot charge God, the Father, with evil. And so they created multiple things. First, they said, well, if, if there's God, the Father, there has to have been other gods, lower deities who created the world, and maybe that God came to save us. Or they came up with some other idea, and that's docetism. They said, you know what? Maybe God, he came, but he's not really in the flesh. You see? Because flesh is evil. And so what about their concept of salvation? One of their concepts of salvation is since you are in the flesh, those human beings, and they were one of them, how can you be saved? Well, they would tell you every human being has a spark of divinity inside of you, and you have to escape this body because this flesh is evil. You have to go into this newer plane, this better and good plane of the spirit. And so they say, you have to have gnosis. You have to have certain knowledge in order for you to escape the inferior physical world and to go into the spiritual realm and thus be saved. And so these are some of the assumptions. And you, now you start to see how everything else will start to make sense. Their view of Christ's deity. Look in your, in your handout there. Christ is God in the Gnostic idea. Christ is God, but he's a distinct God from the Father. You see? They are trying to separate the two. But they are saying Christ is God. In Christ's humanity, how they view his body and soul, they say Christ is a man, but his body is heavenly flesh. He's not born of the Virgin Mary. So on their idea then, they have two Christs. They have the man, Christ, and they have the Christ spirit. So Jesus and the Christ spirit. And there are two persons, two natures. And the man who has heavenly flesh, Jesus, has been anointed, so they say, at his baptism with the Christ spirit, and at his suffering, before his crucifixion, the Christ spirit left him. Why? Because the spiritual realm cannot be defiled by things like death. And so they had a problem with three things. Womb, wound, 
and tomb. So they had a problem with the virgin birth of the flesh, human birth. They had a problem with wound on the cross. You can't have God on the cross. Number three, tomb. You can't have God dead. Right? So these three things they have a problem with. Now let's see docetism, which really coming from Gnostic ideas. It's really marrying Hellenistic philosophy and Judeo-Christian theology together. It's a syncretistic system. Syncretism means just two religious or, or more than two religious systems putting together and you're trying to create a cohesive worldview. So in docetism, docetism comes from the Greek word that means to seem. It seems like, or he only appeared to be man, but he wasn't really man. He was God. Christ was God, but not man. It only appeared to his disciples that he was man. And so they believe that Christ is one person with one nature. He only seemed to have suffered on the cross. He didn't really suffer on the cross. Now, how did John respond to these things? Well, before we see how John responded to them, is there anything in modern Christendom today in the evangelical circles that resemble Gnostic theology? I would argue, yes, indeed, there is something, a modern equivalence of Gnosticism even today. It is actually coming out of evangelicalism. Those who are coming out of evangelicalism, they call themselves ex-evangelicals. This movement is called progressive Christianity. One of their main influencers, his name is Richard Rohr. He wrote a New York Times best-selling book called The Universal Christ, not too long ago. And recently, he was interviewed by Oprah Winfrey on her show. Talking about his book, he said that early Christians were panentheists. And he made sure to distinguish not pantheism, not pantheists, which is the view that God is everything. So this is God, this is God, everything is God. He's saying, no, early Christians were panentheists, which means that God is in everything. That's a very, very odd teaching, isn't it? Well, let's dig in a little bit deeper. As I was doing some more research about his book, I came across a review article of his book on the Gospel Coalition written by a theologian. His name is Michael McClement. And he captures Rohr's belief. And now I put a quote for you here. This is the quote from the article. He said he's trying to express Rohr's belief about who Christ is. And he says this. In Rohr's mind, more, Christ is more of a process than a person. Open quote. The Christ mystery is not a one-time event but an ongoing process throughout time, as constant as the light that fills the universe, the universe, close quote. And so not, open quote, limiting the creator's presence to just one human manifestation, Jesus, close quote. Michael continues, he says, Rohr doesn't say in so many words that Jesus was or is the incarnation of God or the Son of God. Instead, he writes of an, quote, incarnation that Christians believe happened with Jesus, end quote. 
Incarnation then, in the mind of Rohr, appears to be a certain way that people look at Jesus. It's not an objective fact. Rohr dedicates his book to his dog, Venus. And he says that his dog, Venus, was Christ for him. One of his other views on Christian theology, Richard Rohr, he's one of the main influencers in this progressive Christian movement. He believes that the substitutionary atonement of Christ, which means the atonement of Christ on the cross, taking on the punishment that you and I deserve, exhausting the wrath of God and appeasing the justice of God, in biblical terms, is called propitiation. Rohr denies that. He says, open quote, God's great act of solidarity with humanity is the crucifixion. He continues, he adds, open quote, not some bloody transaction required by God's offending justice in order to rectify the problem of human sin, end quote. So he has a problem with the cross. He has a problem with the concept of that Christ took our place in punishment. He says this is wrong. That means God is exacting some sort of vengeance or blood, and he disagrees with that. Michael McClement, at the end of his article, makes an insightful connection. He puts Roar where he belongs in the Gnostic tradition. Why? Because Roar separates Jesus from the Christ. So Jesus is one manifestation of the universal Christ, you see? And he separates Jesus from Christ. And this is the heart of Gnostic theology. And indeed, many people today, like uh, Mary Baker Eddy, the founder of Christian Science, and New Age thinkers of the 1980s all the way till now, they're also espouse similar ideas. So, how can we refute then Rohr's claims? Well, in order to refute Rohr's claims and the claims of progressive Christianity, we need to understand this letter, 1 John. So, we need to ask questions. And the first question has to be asked, that must be asked, is what were the objectives of the Apostle John. So I divided the object of the apostles into two basic categories. The first is that he was establishing orthodoxy. The second, he was explaining orthopraxy. What does orthodoxy mean? Means right belief. Orthopraxy means right behavior. So right belief leads to right behavior. And the way he fleshes this out in orthodoxy, John explains Christ's divinity and Christ's humanity. And then when he moves to orthopraxy, he explains how does Christ's divinity impact the Christian life? How does Christ's humanity impact the Christian life? That's the core. Church, you need to capture this. This is very important. This is the core of this epistle. And as we go throughout this sermon series, you will notice orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, all throughout. 
Christ is God, Christ is man. Here's how we should act as a result of that. Christ is God, Christ is man. Here's how we ought to relate to each other as a result of that. So he was dealing with theological errors and ethical errors. In this sermon, I want to address orthodoxy only. We're not going to talk about orthopraxy. This is going to be for other sermons we'll be discussing as the text itself will be discussing. So let's go back to see the divine nature of Christ and then the human nature of Christ. So now we're only going to do just the divine nature of Christ, okay? Let's go back to our main passage. 1 John 1, 1 to 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. I want to draw your attention to that first phrase. That which was from the beginning. One theologian, and I think correctly, notes that there are two implications to that phrase as it repeats itself all throughout the epistle, from the beginning. The first implication, he's saying that this is what we preach from the beginning. Remember my gospel? Remember the apostle Paul when he came through Asia Minor? Don't you know, church? This is what we proclaim from the beginning. That's the first implication. The second implication, that's really what it means here in this verse, that Jesus Christ, the word of life, was existing from the beginning. And it's quite obvious to know that. Look in the first phrase, it says, from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and looked and have touched concerning the word of life, that life was made manifest to us. And so he's saying that the word of life was made manifest to us. And look at the final phrase in verse 2, which was with the Father. In verse 3, notice he continues, he says, that, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, Obviously, this phrase also, from the beginning, and all of these, these three verses really echo the Gospel of John. So let's go to the Gospel of John and see how we can prove the deity of Christ from the Gospel of John. Let's turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The first five verses addresses the deity of the word of life, okay? Verse 1, in the beginning was the word. Here you go again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Look at the phrase again, second, ver second verse. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And he's talking in 1 John, the word of life. Now, in 1 John, he 
merges them, he merges them together, and he says the word of life will be manifest to us. Look in the gospel, drop down your eye to verse 14. He says, and the word, so that word that was in the beginning became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And this word here in the Greek, dwelt among, among us, is actually he tabernacled with us. Literally means he pitched his tent with us, as one theologian would put it. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And he talks then about John. He says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we, all, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he made him known. He's talking about the word the Son of God, who is at the right hand of God the Father. He has made him known, and that word made him known here, he exegeted him. He showed us the Father. We behold the Father in the face of the Son. And so he made him known. He literally exegeted him. Let's go back to First John. There are many instances in First John where he actually talks about the divinity of Christ. Let me give you one example. Turn to chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 14 and 15, he says, and are you there? Chapter 4? Chapter 4, verse 14 and 15 from 1 John. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, you see? He now equated Jesus with the Son of God. He says, God abides in him and he in God. Now, look at chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 20, you have one of the most explicit statements of the divinity of Jesus Christ. He says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Very explicit. Let me show you other passages in the New Testament that really talk about the divinity of Christ now dwells bodily. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. This is a Pauline epistle. And remember, Colossae was in Asia Minor. It was in the same area that the churches that the Apostle John was writing to. So Colossae could have been one of those. And we know, in fact, it was one of those who was affected by the Gnostic teaching. We'll discuss this another time. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. 
He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, pay attention to this verse. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, so God dwelt in Jesus fully, and Jesus died on the cross, blood on the cross. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In his body of flesh by his death. Now go down to chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Now he addresses this, the root, Paul, of the Gnostic theology. He says in verse 8, chapter 2 of Colossians, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It is clear. It is direct. Okay, one more. Romans chapter 9. Verse 5. In verse 4, he addresses the privilege of Israel, those who are the Jews. And says, he says in verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh, is the Christ. So according to the flesh, Jesus Christ was a Jew, and he is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, what about his humanity? Well, let's discover his humanity. Go back to 1 John, and you will see his humanity quite evident from the verses that we just discussed when he says, which we have, we have heard and we have seen with our eyes, we have touched with our hands. We were there. We saw him. We know him. We have been with him. In chapter 2, he says something very important. He talks about Jesus as the righteous. In verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And then in verse 6, he says, we ought to walk in the same manner in which he walked. How can you walk if he is talking only of Christ's divinity? He clearly is not. And if you're not convinced, I will convince you. Go to the end of chapter 2. He says, in verse 28 and 29, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, and he comes back in judgment bodily, we may have the confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, he's a righteous man. He's not talking about Christ, the Son of God, as in God being holy and absolutely righteous. He's talking about Jesus Christ, the man who is the righteous one. 
Let's continue in verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So if you're born again, you will walk in newness of life. And that means, according to Paul in Romans 8, we will be conformed to the image of the Son. We will be like Christ. He is our example. He is the righteous one. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. Uh, verse 2 specifically. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Now catch this. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Look, unless you are a Mormon and you believe that you will become like God, uh, this is, doesn't make sense here. And Mormonism is a heresy, by the way. So don't, don't believe that. We shall be like him because Jesus Christ is man. And we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Look at chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. It's very important. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, it's very important. I want to bring you back to chapter 2, verse 22. Talking about the Antichrist, the spirit that is denying Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 22, he says, Who is the liar but the one but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? There's no separation. See, roar. And progressive Christians want to separate Jesus from Christ. And they say Jesus is just one manifestation of the Christ spirit, whatever that is. But it is clear from Scripture that Jesus is the Christ. He is fully God. He is fully man. It is clear. Let's do one more. In chapter 4. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, and God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Full circle. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He did come in the flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary. And he did live a perfect life. And he died on the cross for my sin and for yours. Taking the punishment that you and I deserve on the cross. Exhausting the wrath of God. The infinite wrath of God. And so the justice of God is satisfied. And that's what it means when we say he was the propitiation for our sins. You want to know what the love of God is? You look at the cross. And if you deprive Jesus Christ of his divinity or his full humanity, you are taking another spear right in the cross. You're undermining the gospel was made manifest among us. Let's go back to our passage. Here's the full circle. He says, 
the word of life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us for our sake. And this is the core of Christian. By the way, there is no theologizing. There is no theology if Christ was not crucified. If God was not made man, he became man to die for our sins. This is the heart of the gospel, the heart of biblical revelation. And the first Christian creed, one of the first Christian creeds that we need to know is written in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Turn with me, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Brother, sister, friend, this is the gospel. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery. The hypostatic union is a mystery. One person, two natures. He is fully God, 100% God, and he's fully man, body and soul. 100% man. And so he, Paul says, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, in some manuscripts, says God was, made, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the gospel. Some of you may ask, why did God have to be one of us? Why did God have to be man? And the answer, not the long answer, we already finished our time together, it's not the long answer, I promise, in the letter to the Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, in chapter 2, gives us the answer. Why was it necessary that God would be man? Why is it necessary for us to believe that? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 18. Now pay close attention. This is the last passage we're going to be looking at together. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Those who believe are children of Abraham. Look at verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Here's our word again, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. 
Jesus Christ, a faithful high priest at the right hand of God the Father, knows everything about us. He is God. He lived a perfect life that we ought to live, but we can't. So he lived it for us. And so those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who know that they are sinners, they cannot be righteous without God, turn from their sins and trust in the one and only Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who became man, lived a perfect life, and died on the cross. That's the gospel. So now we can ask, what is the summary of all of this? So what do I want you to get out of all of this? I know we've covered a lot of material. I know we have covered a lot of scripture. I understand that. And that's why there's a summary. Three points. Three points, simple. If you get that, then you really got the whole sermon. Okay? Point number one. Truth divides. Can I hear an amen? Yes, it does. Surely it does. Truth divides between true and error, falsehood and truthfulness. Truth divides between salvation and damnation. Of course, truth divides. Right belief brings about salvation or damnation. Right belief leads to right behavior. That's number one. Number two, the hypostatic union, that weird word. Make sure you write it down in your handout. The hypostatic union is meaning the dual nature of Christ, that he's one person with two natures, fully God and fully man. You need to understand this. I know there's a lot of Christians who do not know this, so please write it down in your notes. Number three, the Son of God became flesh to save those who are in the flesh. He did not come to save spirits. He came to save humans. And that's why he had to be one of us in order to save us. Okay? So where do we go from here then? What is an application? This is orthodoxy. It's all here. So what can we do as Christians? Now that as, as I send you out, you go back home, you go separate ways, what should you do? Here's some application points. Number one, commit to grow in biblical doctrine, to discern truth from error. So here's an example. I put an action point here for you so you can go on YouTube. I don't know if they have it still in full, um, uh, the full video there, but you can look it up. It's a documentary called American Gospel, Christ Crucified. It's a biblically-based documentary that talks about this uh, really heretical teachings of progressive Christianity, and it compares it to biblical doctrine. So everything that we discussed, I'm sure they're going to even say it even uh, more beautifully. Number two, submit yourself to the, to the Bible's authority, accepting only biblically-based, historic, orthodox, and reformed Christian beliefs, and do not defer to novelties. If you hear something new, everything new is suspect, okay? Everything new is suspect. And so we have to always go back to Scripture, first and foremost, and historic Christian creeds and confessions. So what we, you can learn in your handout, so you don't have to look this up, uh, you have the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed is really uh, kind of 
The same thing as the Apostle Creed really kind of beefed up. In the fourth century, it was written to combat heresies like Gnosticism. So, and also, of course, I cannot not say that, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith, LBCF. It's on our website. That's our confession of faith. You can look it up. There's everything that is in the Apostles' Creed and a lot more. All these doctrines are there for you, so make sure you read them. Number three, contemplate the implication of the divine incarnation of Christ on your life. You can do this by, here's a plug, join a home group. Join a home group and learn more about these things. Okay, so before I let you go, I invite you all to stand. We're going to do something new today. I know this was a long sermon, so I apologize in advance. Not in advance, too late now. So, then I see in Creed, we're going to recite it together as a church. I know we're not a liturgical church. This is not part of our liturgy, but it's going to be good for us, good for your soul. So we're going to read this out loud in unison together. Then I see in Creed, then I see the big one, the, the big one. You're like, oh my goodness, we're still here for a bit longer. Yes. I see in Creed together. We believe in one God. Go ahead. Of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and we believe in the holy Catholic and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I thank you because it is truth. Your word is truth. We thank you, Lord, because you have sent your only begotten son, the creator of heaven and earth, to be made man to die for our sins so that we can be reconciled to you by the blood of his cross. We thank you, God. I pray, Lord, that every single soul here or those who are hearing us preaching Lord, I pray that they would be changed, that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would turn from their wicked ways, that they would trust in you. Lord God, I pray that we would never forget 
that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, that we would dwell and meditate on this amazing reality, this mystery of godliness. Lord, change our hearts. Help us, God, to live the life that you have called us to live, that we would, we would glorify you in everything that we do, now and forevermore. You'll be glorified. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.